Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and let's open them to Revelation chapter 22. We're getting closer and closer to the end of our study in Revelation. I promise you that I am not trying to drag this out beyond what is reasonable. It's just there. there's a whole lot to say about these last verses that we're studying here. And it's taken us a little while to get through those. You remember when we arrived at verse number 6 in chapter 22, I said that the last words of great men are very important. When philosophers or kings or presidents or prolific authors die, people are often very interested in the last words that they have to say. Sometimes those words are worth hearing and sometimes they're not. You may remember maybe a couple of times I've told you about the French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. Uh, He was a philosopher in the 18th century and he would go on these diatribes all the time against Christianity. Uh, he, He openly cursed Christ. He hated Christianity. And Voltaire said that within 20 years that he would completely obliterate Christianity with the power of his pen. And when Voltaire died, the nurse that was attending him said, For all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another infidel die. And that's because Voltaire pleaded on his deathbed. He said to his physician, I'll give you everything that I have, everything that I'm worth, everything I'm worth, if you'll just give me, give me six more months to live. And, of course, he knew that that was impossible. And he said, and when you do that, I'll go to hell and you'll go with me. And then he cursed Christ right on his deathbed. Well, Voltaire's testimony didn't change concerning Christ. And so if the accounts of his death are accurate, he gave evidence that he got his wish, that he died and he went to hell. And quite often you'll find that the last words that a person speaks may commend them to God or they may cause them to be reprobates from God. Now here... In this chapter, we have God's last words to man. And if men's words are important, how much more can we say are important the words of God? And they're so important, in fact, that God has added a warning to his last words. And he says that we are not to change in the least anything that God says. Our subject this evening is the final warning. And we find this in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says... For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. Now, before we get into the message tonight, I want to give you the major premise that we find in these verses. The major premise is that we must have reverence for God's Word. We have to be very careful how we handle God's Word because we're dealing with the most powerfully potent substance that that God has on this planet. The Word of God is God's personal testimony. Uh, The book that we're studying, of course, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But there is this sense, as we all know, that all of the Bible is, is God's revelation. And it is by this book that we understand who God is. We understand how we can have a relationship with him. It's by this book that we understand God's existence in three persons. 
We understand how the world was created for God's glory and how God chose to reveal himself through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We understand from this book that God has an eternal purpose for our existence, that he is the sovereign who controls all things according to the pleasure of his will. He gave us a book to explain what he did and in some sense why he did it, even though our understanding of this book is severely or greatly limited by our fallen human nature. So all that we are is centered in God, and when he speaks, we need to understand that we are obliged to obey him. He commands us to obey him. And certainly because we're less than ants compared to him, we have no right to alter any word that God has said. And so it's with that sense that we have to approach these last words. Now, there are many people that will tell you that the study of the Bible is, is not, not important. It's not good for you. Some say that it makes men mad. And I think I was discussing this with someone the other day that someone said that it makes mad men worse. Study the Bible. If you're mad, you'll be worse when you get done with it. And people ridicule this because they think the scriptures are not important. They call us crazy. They think for us to be here on a holiday weekend in this church studying the word of God makes no sense at all to them. They don't understand why a pastor or a theologian would devote his entire life to the Bible. But God's very serious about his book, and so he's included warnings concerning it. We have in this Bible that God has given us are issues that deal with physical life and physical death, also eternal life and eternal death. So how should we handle the Word of God? What should we do? How should we handle a book that God has given us that is so deep that it's impossible for us to touch bottom? How do we handle God's Word? One word, carefully. Handle God's Word carefully. And I was impressed when... Brother Johnny Sloan was here, and I was approached to his preaching of the Word of God because he said that he was struck with fear when he entered into the pulpit, that, that he came into the pulpit with this sense of, of, um, of being terrorized about not handling God's Word correctly. I remember in the luncheon that we had that day that he said to me, I feel like Isaiah, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And that gives you a sense of why that I followed up his words on that Sunday evening by telling this little story about G. Campbell Morgan, how he was offended when he was introduced by a pastor before he was ready to speak. And this pastor has been telling jokes, and he had the crowd rollicking with laughter. And G. Campbell Morgan was offended, and when he got up into the pulpit, he just simply said, Hear the word of God with no pleasantries. And I think that we have to be very serious when we enter the pulpit. I think we have to be careful about what we say and what we do. Now, there might be a little bit of room for humor every now and then, but it's really hard to get people to have a sense of how serious God's Word is and how serious it is for their souls and how serious that hell is when you spend your time having a laughing and, and just making a joke of everything that goes on in church. So we have to be very careful when we approach this because it is so serious. So it's with that feeling that we approach this final warning in Scripture. This is God's Word. And by no means is, are, are these last words that we find in Revelation the only time that God has said for us to be careful about handling it and not to take or away from God's Word. Now, I might talk about these scriptures a little bit more, uh, maybe next week. I'm not sure whether I'll do this or not. But in the Pentateuch, those 
five books that begin the Bible that were penned by Moses, there's a warning at the end of the Pentateuch about adding or taking away from Scripture. In the wisdom literature, in the, Pro, uh, in the book of Proverbs, it says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And the major prophets, Jeremiah said, when the Lord said to Jeremiah, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word. And so this message is clear throughout Scripture. We're not to touch what God said. We're not to alter it. We're not to add to it. We're not to subtract from it. Not to change it in the slightest degree, because to do so brings down God's wrath. Any alteration in God's Word is a change in the revelation of God, and that can have very, very serious consequences. Now, we've already seen in the book of Galatians, those of you that come to our study on Wednesday nights, we've seen how that Paul claimed to speak under the inspiration of God. And when he delivered the gospel to his converts, it was the pure Word of God, but it had been altered by Judaizers. The gospel had been changed by them, And so what Paul did was to follow God's convention that he gave throughout the rest of Scripture, and he pronounced a curse on those Judaizers for changing the gospel of Christ. So Paul said, let them be anathema. And as we've said, that has the meaning of let them go to hell. That's how serious this is when you tamper with God's word. And I don't want to be guilty of that. And so we should heed this warning, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. J.A. Sice wrote, To put forth for truth what is not truth, to denounce as error, condemn, repudiate, or emasculate what God himself has set to his seal to as his mind and purpose, is one of the high crimes not only against God, but against the souls of men which cannot go unpunished. Now those are very solemn words, and this is a very serious warning And yet we find that there are many people that pervert God's word. There are many preachers that are guilty of hiding the truth or saying something that's not truth. There are even translation committees of translating Bibles, and they have no problem at all putting out all kinds of new Bibles with twisted interpretations of Scripture in the place of what God said. And that is a real problem with Bible translations. If you, if you have a chance sometime to get your hands on two books that were written by Leland Riken, uh, Understanding English Bible Translation and the Legacy of the King James Bible, you'll find some very interesting comments that he makes there. And you'll find out this, that, that Riken was not a King James-only advocate. And if you really understand what that means, then you understand that we're, we're not either, not in the sense that those words mean, but... He makes some very good comments about translators who don't believe that God was capable of saying what he wanted to say. And so they think it's their responsibility to explain what God said by interpreting Scripture rather than translating it. Now, we interpret Scripture when we preach the Word of God. That's what preaching is all about. And we're never going to be able to to interpret if we don't actually have what God said. I mean, does that make sense to you? We can't interpret what God said if we don't even know what it is. Many of the Bible, new Bible translations don't give us what God originally said. So how's the preacher going to know if he's interpreting an interpretation or if he's interpreting the original words of God? 
So what do we do? We heed the warnings. We leave God's word alone. God's the author of Scripture. He's the infallible creator of man. And if he's not capable of saying what he wanted to say, then how is it possible for a creature to correct him? It's impossible for us to do. So we have the warnings. Again, don't touch the word of God. And we're going to take some time to understand these two verses. This evening, I want to give you mostly an introduction. And uh, the introduction has its own outline. Then next week, when we get into the verses themselves, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more, and we'll start over with a new outline. So there are just two main points that I want to talk to you about this evening. And I don't know, we're 22 minutes before 8. Uh, we'll try to get done, or excuse me, before 7. Don't have, don't have a heart attack there. Um, we'll try to get done by 7 o'clock here, and we will hurry on just a little bit to try to get finished. But first... I want to talk to you about the speaker of the warning, the speaker of this warning. And we have a little bit of trouble identifying the speakers as we go through these last verses. These last 16 verses are sometimes confusing to us. And I've mentioned that because there are different speakers. Sometimes the angel speaks, sometimes John speaks, sometimes it's Jesus speaking, sometimes the Holy Spirit, sometimes the church. I didn't have time to check out all the red-letter Bibles that I own, and I, but I'm fairly sure that they're consistent about this uh, on the last 16 verses. According to the Bible that I'm using, and you probably have one that's very similar, verses 7, 12, 13, and 16 are in red letters. Now, I know that there are some who dispute who says what in these last verses, but I think that those verses are probably pretty much agreed on. Those are things in the red letters that Jesus said. There are some people who say, well, we shouldn't even have any red letters in the Bible. I know there's some that disagree with that, and uh, they'll say, and, and we agree, everything in the Bible has been spoken by God, and if the red letters throw us off, and we think that somehow those are more important than what's written in the black, then we've got a problem there. We don't understand. And what we might be tempted to do is throw out everything that's in the black letters and keep the red letters because we think those are more important. We don't need to pay any attention to black letters anyway. When we were studying the book of Galatians, I made some comments about this, and, and some think that Paul and Jesus were in disagreement with one another. Now, Paul, of course, you find his, his words in the black letters of the Bible, and you find Jesus' words in the red letters, and there's some who say, well, Paul is the one who messed up Jesus' teaching. This is why everybody's so confused today, because Paul took what Jesus said, and he just pretty much destroyed it but you need to remember this and you need to know this that when Paul wrote letters to the churches they were every bit as much authoritative as what we read here in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 when Jesus was speaking to the seven churches of Asia so when we consider this we're looking at the the whole word of God the complete canon of scripture this is God's word and the warning is attached to everything that's written in scripture doesn't make any difference who the human author was doesn't make any difference who God used as the instrument all of this is God's word to us now having said that verses 18 and 19 you notice are not in red letters And so that's an indication that the person who gave us the red letters didn't think that this was Jesus that was speaking. But I want to ask you a question about that. Who has the authority to speak these words? Does John have that authority? Does he have this kind of authority to put a warning here? You know, I don't get the picture from reading Revelation that that John was a chest thumper. 
I think that John was standing back from this, and I don't want to say that he was timid about it, but I will say that he was overwhelmed. I mean, who couldn't be overwhelmed if you saw what John saw? This was so fantastic that I, I think there were times that John had to rub his eyes and he had, to, he had to, from time to time, pinch himself to check and see if he wasn't dreaming. And so I don't think that John came down to the end and he wrote what he was commanded to write and he tried to set his own seal of authority on what's written here. Now, as apostle of Jesus Christ, he may have had that authority, but the question is, did John take that authority upon himself? So what I think that we can do is to go back to verse number 16 in the red letters, and there it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. And so I think that we can connect that to verses 18 and 19 and say that these are words that are also spoken by Jesus Christ. He says, for I testify in verse number 18, and I believe that most likely those are words that Jesus spoke and that Jesus was addressing the reader directly. Now, when I read those words, I have to think about the authority in this verse. When Jesus came to the earth, there were people that said about him, no man ever spoke like this man. And you remember when he was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane? The Word of God says that when they came to, to take him, that he spoke, and those people fell backward at the force of his words. I think we have to look at that. Imagine how it must be, what his words must sound like when the Son of God is glorified. Imagine what it must be like when the glory of Jesus Christ has not been veiled by human flesh. Imagine what it must be like to hear the voice of the Son of God coming out of that shining bright light that lights all of heaven and uh, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the voice that Paul heard and struck him to the ground in the light that he saw. Imagine hearing Jesus Christ speak in that glory. And so I believe what we have is John standing in the presence of the glorified Christ and hearing him. He had a real sense of what it would be like for anyone that would have the audacity to ignore or to change the words of God. So who is the speaker and what is he like? Well, I'd like you to turn back to the first chapter for just a moment and let's take a minute here to look at the beginning of John's vision. In the first chapter, John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice that was speaking to him. And if you look in Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse number 12, it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So John heard a voice, he says, that sounded like many waters. And the picture that I get in my mind is like the ocean as it comes in crashing into the shore with these 50-foot swells, a mighty thunderous roar. Or I get the picture of, of, the, of the noise of Niagara. I know how many have ever been to Niagara Falls, but if you've ever heard the noise of those waters rushing over the rocks and, and that massive amount of water as it hits that pool of water at the bottom, I mean, it's just fantastic. And I think that's the kind of sound that John heard. Now, stay right there where you are, and let me, let me read you another scripture in Isaiah 29. 
It says, Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise and storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And that is consistent with John's description. We go on reading here in Revelation 1 at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, I think it's most interesting that John received that command to write after he came upon this magnificent sight of the glorified Christ. And so now, in the end, I think it's the same Christ who pronounces this horrific warning, don't add, don't take away from any of the words of the prophecy of this book. So can you imagine that scene as John sees this? I think his hand must have been shaking when he later recalled what Jesus said. Do you think that he was careful after hearing this to record what God said accurately? Well, thank the Lord for this, that he was guided by the Holy Spirit and he was protected so that he got every word right. And he didn't leave anything out. He didn't add anything to it. And God saw that he wouldn't because these are things that had to be written exactly as God says. So I don't think that John was straining to remember this. And I don't think that he sat back and said, boy, I wonder if I got that right. Is that what he actually said? Have I got all the details right? No. The Holy Spirit guided him as he wrote this right down, I think, to the very punctuation mark so that he got it exactly right. So I think then that the speaker here is Christ. And he's the one that adds the warning to the end of the book. Now, that brings me to another thought then. Secondly, is the source of the warning. And I think we've already discovered the source. That's that's the same as the speaker. But I want to take these last few minutes to consider what some have said regarding the source of these words. Because there are some who believe that these words should not even be in the Bible at all. Now, it was customary in ancient times for books to include a warning about changing what was written. In the books of authors that weren't divinely inspired, they would often add these little anathemas at the end of their writings, and they would warn people not to change what had been written. And what you could call that is sort of like a like an ancient copyright. Of course, it didn't have the force of law that our copyright laws do, but they sort of add a little curse to the end of what they wrote because they didn't want anybody to take credit for what they wrote. I mean, today it's just like like uh, any book, just about any book is going to include a, a copyright, and that's because the author wants his due reward. He, he wants to uh, the credit for what he's written, and he doesn't want anybody to steal that. And so if you come along and you plagiarize what somebody's written and you claim that to be your own, then it's likely that you're going to get in a lawsuit. When we put lyrics to our songs up on the screen, you'll notice at the end of the song there's a copyright there, or there we, we purchased a license that says that we are able to put those words on the screen. And if we don't have that, then the author of those songs could come along and say, well, you haven't paid the proper royalties for that. And so uh, we're, 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 we're going to sue you for doing that. 
And I, and I think this is kind of interesting if you didn't already know it. Some of you might even be carrying a Bible tonight that has a copyright on it. Some man has said that I want my just due for this. And so some of the guys that printed your Bibles, they, they, they want that, that recognition that they did it. They want to be changing that work. And whenever we put a quote on the screen from a different Bible version, did you know that we're actually required to put what version it's taken from? And if we put an extended quote up there, we even have to include the copyright for it. And that's because printing Bibles is big business. And that's why you see a new Bible coming out just about every year. You think we really need all those Bibles? I mean, do we need a Heinz 57 variety of Bibles? Is, is one Bible not good enough for all of us? I think that it is. Well, that be as it may, though, that you had these books in the ancient world, and they had their own version of a copyright, and that's a warning not to tamper with what was written. And there are people that think that this is what happened with these last words of the Bible, that they say these words were not written by John, and they weren't said by Jesus. Now, as you know, we have the Bible today because there were scribes that were very careful about copying down Scripture. They, they made scrolls of the Bible, and the scroll didn't last forever, and so they had to make copies of it, and you needed more than one copy anyway. So you have these scribes that would very diligently copy down the manuscripts, and that was a task that was so tedious that it would take a very long time just to get the copy of one book of the Bible. Sometimes what a scribe would do is he would write one letter or just one word. And he would make sure that that letter or that word was absolutely accurate. And sometimes he would get up from the writing and the copying and he would leave the room. And maybe come back the next day before he would write another word. That's how serious it was to them. And so there, there are some people who think that the scribes wanting to be so accurate and they considered the, the weight of what they were doing to be such a, such a, 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 a tremendous task that what we have here is a warning to scribes to be careful about how they copied Scripture. So originally the warning comes to them. In the second century, Irenaeus wrote, Whoever of you are that are making a copy of this book, I adjure you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by his glorious advent when he comes to judge the living and the dead, that you compare your copy and correct it carefully by this original manuscript but listen to this last part that he says, and likewise transcribe the adjuration and set in your copy. I'll explain that in just a minute. I think you may get that. And then when the Pentateuch was translated from Hebrew into Greek, Aristius said, as soon as the scrolls had been read, the priest, the eldest of the translators, representatives of the commune, and the rulers of the people stood up and said, for as much as the translation has been well and piously carried out with complete accuracy, it is right that it should be preserved in its present form without further revision. When all had assented to this proposal, they gave a ruling in accordance with their custom that an imprecation be imposed on anyone who should revise the text by addition by any alteration whatsoever of what was written in it or by subtraction. And so there you have a committee that says that the translation copies have been approved 
And then just like Irenaeus said in the earlier quote, they added their own little anathema to the end of it, not to change what was written. And so the scribes were very careful about this. They had this deep sense that they were responsible for the words of God and they best not get them wrong. And so it's with that in mind that some believe that there was a scribe somewhere back along the line that was making a manuscript, copying a manuscript of Revelation, and with this deep sense of what he was doing, the responsibility of it, he's the one that added verses 18 and 19 and just put his own sort of copyright on it like they did books in the ancient world. Now, do you see an immediate problem with that? You see how illogical an assertion like that would be? Because if the scribe had a warning, he says, not to add to the words of Scripture, and then he added the warning to the words of Scripture, what has he done? He's pronounced the curse upon himself. And that doesn't make any sense of all at all. And, of course, that's not the only place where people say that Scripture has been added to by scribes along the way. And so we have a Bible that has all these added tidbits of what people thought needed to be put in there, a scribe trying to correct something. I think it was the Jesus Seminar a few years ago that said that in the Gospels, there is actually, they said there was only one statement in all the Gospels that they believed that Jesus actually said. And so all this other stuff supposedly got added by someone else. And when we were studying First John, we looked at textual variations there. And there's some who say that First John 5, 7 shouldn't be in the Bible, that that was added by a scribe in some particular time. Now, what we can't accept, though, is that we have a Bible that includes God's words and man's opinions. You know, I, I've told you before that as much as I like John MacArthur, I have some strong disagreements with him. You know, I think that he's a great teacher. I think he's a good Bible expositor, but I don't think he's infallible. I think he has made some mistakes. And he agrees with many that in the book of Mark, and and I just point this one out in particular, in the book of Mark, the 16th chapter, the last verses, verses 9 through 20, he believes were added by someone else. Now, he says everything that was written there is true, but those words were actually added by someone else. And that's not an uncommon opinion. Now, I don't think that that diminishes MacArthur's belief in inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, and I don't think we can accuse him of being heretical. And that is what's done sometimes when you have people that really don't understand what would cause a person to come to that kind of conclusion. And they say, well, if you have that opinion about well, you're just a rank heretic, well... Um, I know better than that. I've listened to him preach and heard the things that he says. But I heard his last message on the New Testament. And this was the, his last message. Uh, after He completed the New Testament after 40 years of preaching through it verse by verse. So after 40 years, the last chapter that he preached on was Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And in that sermon, he gave an explanation of why he didn't think that Mark 9 through 20, 16, 9 through 20, was part of Scripture. And I'll have to say, I disagree with him. And I, and I think that he's terribly inconsistent by, by what he says. But I'm not going to say that everybody that holds MacArthur's opinion is a heretic. I think he's inconsistent. I think he's wrong. But there are people that deny a lot of things that I teach. And I don't call them heretics. They think that I'm wrong too. Some of them aren't too nice about it either. And they think I'm wrong and they can be very mean and hateful about it. But I don't return that hatred. 
I think that there room, there's room for differences of opinion on Scripture, even in our church, as long as we do not undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is important because if it was necessary for all preachers to agree 100% of the time, and that when we handled the Word of God, that we had to be absolutely 100% accurate and perfect, that we could never miss one interpretation of Scripture, well, we would come under the curse ourselves for not being perfect people. And it's clear from reading Scripture that 100% perfection is not what God requires. Now, what we do is we strive for that. We want to achieve it. We want to make sure that we put in enough effort that we do get it right. But if we miss something... That that's, doesn't mean that we're all heretics or something because we miss something. We just have to be sure that we don't undermine the gospel of Christ. And there's latitude in, in our agreement about Scripture. Now, that's, that's a subject that I might speak a little bit more on too next time. But I'm going to stop with this, and, and I want to just leave you with these thoughts. Think about what I've said. And if you, if you have questions about this, this is why we have a Sunday morning forum class. We address such questions as this. And what we want to do is we want to rightly divide the word of truth. We want to reverence the word of God. We want to lift up God's word and count that as our only authority. And that's because our lives are to be governed by it. Our eternal life is determined by what's written in this book. Our eternal life is guaranteed by it. And so what we don't want to do is add anything to God's word or take anything away from it. So I think it's Jesus who spoke this warning. And with eyes, as John describes, as a flame of fire, with a voice that's like thunderous waters, those things are enough to make me sit up and pay attention. I want to be, I'll pay very closely attention to what the Word of God says. And I want to handle the Word of God, as I said before, very carefully. And make sure that when you read God's Word and you listen to God's Word, that you are always handling or speaking God's Word, that you handle God's Word carefully. Because this is the ever-living Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Word this is the greatest treasure that we have on the earth. This is the word of life. And Lord, I just pray that we would be very, very careful about how we handle it, how we, how we teach it, how we explain this. And we do, Lord, want you to lead us into all truth. And may we never be guilty of diminishing your word. May we never be guilty of adding anything to it. We want to preach just like our sign says outside the unfiltered word of God help us to do that Lord help us to receive your word as truth and believe every word that you've told us and obey it all in Jesus name we pray amen